Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up DTC pod today? Uh, we're joined by Jake Carls, the co-founder of Midday Squares. So Jake, why don't you kick it off? Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your brand and what you guys are building. Well, appreciate it, Blaine and Ramon. Um, yeah, so we're, 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 we're the first functional chocolate bar. Um, basically, what we're trying to do is create a new age Hershey's. So imagine if Hershey's were to start in 2022, what would they look like? And I don't mean like Hershey's in terms of product. I mean like the term of impact and the size. You know, for us, our goal is to create better for you chocolate snacks that are functional, meaning like, you know, they don't just taste good. They're not just, you know, clean ingredients, but they actually have some sort of functionality. So for us, it satisfies hunger for three to four hours. It gives you that natural boost of energy. It has superfoods, high protein, high fiber, and it's made for your midday. So something interesting about us though, is we self-manufacture. So we own our own facilities because we had to, we had no choice. And another thing is we're an entire media company as well. So it's like, we almost have two companies within one. And I think that's paid a lot off to, um, that that's been a big success for us in terms of growth and, 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 and community. What's your background? How did you end up with with a media brand within, you know, a chocolate brand? <laughs> so before Midday Squares, um, you know, me, my sister, my brother-in-law, those are my partners. We were all doing very different things. My brother-in-law, Nick, who's a very nerdy, smart guy, is a software engineer and he had an ad tech business before this. And then he had a couple other failures, but the ad tech one was a big success. My sister, who is our CEO, she had a fashion brand that she she built called Hector. And what was really cool about it is she had Lady Gaga, Rihanna, all these people wearing the gear, but it didn't succeed. And, and it, it burnt a lot of capital and she was drained from it, but she was extremely great at execution and manufacturing. And then you come to me, I was throwing parties on college campuses across Canada and then creating pop-up shop experiences to sell them clothing of the brand of the party. So it's called Chase and Hunter. I ended up closing it, but the company from a community perspective was absolutely on fire. When I mean like community, we had all the college kids wearing the product. People thought it was a multi-million dollar business, even though it was actually not. And it was actually failing hard because I wasn't a good operator. So what's interesting about my skill set is I'm very good at building a community, building connections, making that emotional feeling in people so that they get excited about something and want to rally around it. But what I'm not great at is organization, is anything operation-wise, you know, accounting, financing, you know, ops, manufacturing. So what, what's cool about our partnership is that Midday Squares is built on three different types of leaders. So my brother-in-law, like I said, is he's a software engineer. He has that analytical background. My sister has the execution and manufacturing background. And I have the community background. So we stay in each other's lanes. We don't cross over. And that's what allowed us to have this success leading into Midday Squares. It was 10 years in the making in terms of entrepreneurship before this. 
Got it. And then in terms of how you guys got to uh, chocolate and a functional chocolate at that, where where was the link between, you know, all these skill sets and coming together in terms of like the, the end product that you guys landed on? So the product started um, because my sister was doing her fashion brand and she was making a chocolate snack for my brother-in-law because he was eating a lot of junk chocolate. So like the Hershey's and stuff like that in terms of just high sugar, palm oil, stuff like that. And she said to him, I can make you a cleaner chocolate snack. And she's a foodie, you know, her whole life. And he is as well. I'm not really a foodie. But so she made him the snack. It was delicious. He brought it to his office. Everyone freaked out about it. And he ended up selling out of that company and a two-year non-compete. And my sister ended up closing her fashion brand. And they always wanted to work together on something. So they were looking for a business to start. And the chocolate thing was right in front of their eyes. They just didn't realize it. When one day, my brother-in-law got a report from a major chalk, a major, sorry, conglomerate, food conglomerate here in Canada. And it showed that real chocolate, so a darker chocolate made with like a cocoa butter base rather than palm oil, was growing at like 44% year over year. And that vegan protein was on a tear at like 36% year over year. So in his head, the data guy, he basically is like, holy shit, Leslie's making a baby. My sister's making a baby of those two categories. This is a white space. And they started building the product. They started, you know, working on the commercialization of it, the the testing, the, the whole nine yards. And then they realized that they need someone to build the brand. And that's, this is when I was closing my business in, in, in June 2018. They're like, we need you to do exactly what you did with your other business, but do it now with an operating arm that can function completely behind the scenes. We need you to be the personality, the face, our third partner, but most importantly, build the excitement and noise. And what clicked in my head at that moment was the food and, food and beverage industry is typically quite boring. You know, the brands, the products are just traditionally marketed. So it's like a picture and then it's product features, product benefits. And I said, that's boring as shit. We ain't going to win in those 40,000 different SKUs on the shelf if we do like that. So then I came with a slide and I'll never forget. It was August 2nd or 3rd, 2018. And I showed them a slide of Elon Musk's social media following growing over time. I showed them the Shark Tank's ratings on TV. And then I showed them keeping up with the Kardashians TV ratings And I said, if we just make a baby of all these three things alongside the great product that we have, we are going to be unstoppable. And what that meant was create a reality show in terms of media on entrepreneurship, show the good, the bad, the ugly of everything, how to build a business. So breakdowns, um, you know, opening up retailers, how we raise money, all the stuff that you don't really get to see on Shark Tank. And then all the stuff that gets you excited in dramatic, you know, reality shows. And my brother-in-law and sister were like, holy shit, that's genius. And that was the moment we kind of started to do that. And that side, that started creating this media side of the company where we would just start to hire creators to document, edit, and create nonstop in a loop. And then our marketing became all about that, about the story of Midday Squares. And then as we were working on the product, we knew it was a product market fit. So these two things together allowed us to have extremely rapid growth really fast. Was this, was this at, like, is this on YouTube where, you know, you, you record the content, you have the content, where are you pushing the distribution through? So the distribution was pushed through Instagram at first, um, Instagram, IG television, IG reels now, I guess, IG stories. So we were posting day to day, every day still are on that platform. We're now utilizing LinkedIn tremendously because our industries on that, like the food and beverage industry specifically on that platform, buyers, investors, media, etc. And then now we're entering into the TikTok era where we're starting to play with that type of content. But again, still focused on Instagram because we were early in on it to build a community on it. So we actually have 
a strong following. So what happens is when we post on our stories, it will get, you know, every day between five and 10,000 views organically on the stories. And then on our posts, on our reels or anything like that can go from 10 to 75,000. And that's all organic, no paid media on that. So what ends up happening is, is why wouldn't we continue to share our story on that? And then in the long run, because we have 40,000 videos of everything that happened in this business on Google Drive, very organized, we'll start to formulate that into a longer version on YouTube down the line. And this is under the Midday Squares brand, uh, the, like the reality show? It's all under, like, that's, that's, it's the Instagram for Midday Squares? Yes. So Midday Squares, if you go follow it, what you'll see is you'll be confused at first because you're not going to see anything about the product, like the chocolate bar. But then you'll start to see all these humans and then you'll start to see the drama, the moments of like, okay, we recently just posted our our expo that we went to, went to a big trade show in Anaheim, but there was so much drama, so much fun. So you see that, you see what happened, you see the behind the scenes. Then we'll post about, you know, a manufacturing crisis we had and you'll see that. And what you'll do is during the stories, the actual day-to-day stories on the, like the IG stories, you'll see what's happening in the moment. So it's almost real time. It's just edited slightly. But that's just to shorten the content, not to edit the actual like, uh, you know, effects and stuff like that. I love that. I mean, I, I feel like you I'm sure you know it better than anyone. But running a startup is it's like a daily reality show or a daily soap opera. Right. There's always drama. There's always some hair on fire problem that you're putting out. And and then when you actually have those wins, they're like the most amazing thing in the world. So being able to share that with an audience, I'm sure is amazing. And the question I'd have is so you basically you you guys were developing the the chocolate product you knew there's something there and you were like let's start documenting this from the get-go so did you guys start documenting like right when you were launching yeah so i i want to answer your, your first thing quickly i you know what's interesting is in a startup or you know even as you grow to an d- adult company let's call it there's so much key pieces that happen on a day-to-day you know th- it's not like the typical things you see in a corporation on like tv where it looks like a cubicles and all that shit no, there's like moments of serious decision making that happens and that has to happen fast, right? If you want to be a company in 2022, you can't just be stagnant. You have to be reactive very quickly, right? So so interesting enough, this week we hit a huge milestone yesterday. We sold our most amount of dollars online for our DSC ever in history. I think we sold over 51000 or something dollars just on our website. So not even on anything else, just on our own website and that was record breaking, but yet there was such a low that happened that yeah, the day the day before, which was we had a water break in our facility. We our chocolate machine broke down. Supplier sent us the wrong ingredients. We couldn't produce for over twenty four hours, which cost us tens of thousands of dollars. And it's like you see these highs and lows, but we share those with you. We share the emotionality that we go through. And I think when you said about when do we start documenting, the day I showed that presentation. The last slide was on that presentation with the, when I showed the Shark Tank, Keeping Up with the Kardashians and Elon Musk, was we are going to become a rock band of entrepreneurs, but instead of selling records, we're selling chocolate. So we have to create personalities, and the only way to do it is to document and just share it. And what happened was is someone will always relate to us, and in the end, what that did was it made people go to the store, and when they saw the product in the fridge at the grocery store... They no longer saw a chocolate bar. They now saw a brand that they know. So they know Jake, Nick, Leslie, and the Midday Squares crew. And they feel like they're buying from a family member, a friend, or a neighbor because they're part of the journey with you because they see the emotions and feel them. 
Yeah, and I think that's such a real way to talk about storytelling. I know storytelling is the biggest buzzword, and we it's something that we talk with a lot of our guests about. What's storytelling? How do you tell the story of the brand? But I think your guys' take on storytelling is something that's super compelling because you guys are the story. And even the, the community and the people following you along, they're part of the story too, right? So um, I guess that would lead into my next question is how do you guys really think about story? And is it something that you've always thought about? I know you said you've built these communities before, but what you guys are doing is is genuinely distinguished and different from what everyone else in D2C is doing. So just why don't you talk a little bit about like how you think about story and narrative and how you know you guys ended up so far out there from what everyone else is, is doing? I think for us, we're building out loud, right? So there, there's pros and cons to it. Like I can tell you some of the scrutiny we deal with is quite tough. You know, we, we deal with a ton of stuff when your whole life's out there, when you're showing therapy sessions and you're showing like breakdowns, you're vulnerable, you're in a weird state, your privacy is not there. But we accepted that day once. That's number one. Number two, storytelling is a buzzword in 2022, I would say, because people think storytelling is posting a photo or, or you know, sharing the most perfect situation. And that's not storytelling because that's not authentic. I think to us, what storytelling is, is just share what's actually happening. Share the transparent, authentic reality of what you're going through. And don't be afraid to hide anything. And some companies just can't do that. And I'm not telling other brands to go do what we're doing at Midday Squares because, again, it's in our DNA. The three of us started it by doing that, right? It was day one. But what I do recommend to other brands is if you're going to storytell, make sure don't just spend $60,000 a year on it because it's not going to cut it. That's number one. Number two is find what your authentic angle is. And when you find your authentic angle, go 100% all in, guns blazing on it because that's where the consumer will feel the genuineness and that emotional connection, which again is priceless because your cost per acquisition per customer then goes down just because they become a brand advocate right off the bat. They want to tell someone about your brand. They want to say, hey, on my dinner table, you wouldn't believe what this brand was showing today. It was the coolest thing. They were talking about their therapy session. Think about that for a second. A lot of people are suffering mental health and we're sharing publicly what we're going through on that aspect and not from a fake standpoint, but from what's actually going on in real time. I mean, the, the leverage you have in building these sort of, you know, long-term relationships and authentic conversations, um, I'm sure they reach out and DM, you know, like they're part of your guys' story. And and that's that's a priceless, you know, customer. There's no customer acquisition cost that could ever make up for, you know, building sort of a friendship with your customers that they're along for the ride. Yeah, I think I think the the thesis for us is, can we turn our customers into fans? And if we can, then we know that it's unstoppable. You know, the conglomerates in the chocolate space, you know, the big corps like, you know, Kellogg's, Mondelez, Mars, Hershey's, you know, uh, all these companies, I respect them a lot. You know, they've built massive businesses, but they're struggling now and identify that authentic community feel on how they can relate to the consumer and also how they can turn them into fans. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the most powerful thing in life is if you, me, the other person can relate to each other. I think relatability only comes with genuine storytelling or genuine great product because otherwise you're just like everyone else and this world is full of inauthenticity, right? You know, you see it every day on the social media, on this. So when you see authenticity, 
it strikes right to your heart because you're like, shit, I want to be part of this. I want to be associated with this. This is a breath of fresh air. You know, what, one, one thing I was going to say that I love what you just said is in terms of let's think about how we can turn customers into fans, right? And I think that's a very simple framework and it, it boils everything down because a customer, if it's just a normal customer, they don't really have product preference. They're like, okay, whatever, I'm eating chocolate, like here, that, or whatever. But if you think about a fan, like a fan base, whether it's a rock band, a sports team, et cetera, like there's real loyalty there to the point that they're out there like wear, rocking like the team swag or the, the concert, the band swag in public. And they're like professing that to other people as part of their own identity, right? So if you guys as a brand are like, yo, we don't want, we don't want just customers. We want people who are fans of us and what we do. That really ignites a flywheel to real true organic and not just like, oh, let me run Facebook ads, but real true organic. Like, yo, you have to try this. I'm a fan of this. Get on board, that sort of thing. So I think in terms of other brands listening, like in terms of just like setting a KPI or something, Think about like, okay, what would I have to do with my service, my product, my offering to get people to be fans of what I'm doing and not just like, oh, I buy it and yeah, I'll give it a good rating, right? Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not just about the Google review at the end of the day. And, you know, a lot of people just write great product on some Google reviews. But then when you go read the ones that you made impact on, like the ones that you're talking about, the fans, it is depth what they write. They actually take 5, 10, 15 minutes to go out and express how they feel to the world because they want the world to feel what they felt, what the brand made them feel. I think brands that, you know, have done this in the past are, you know, Lululemon has built a true community um, in terms of size and scalable. You know, people are obsessed with that product. They're obsessed. Like they go into that store and they feel like in, in, in that journey on the roller coaster. And then you go to like a Starbucks, people are posting that coffee that's $5 because they, they want to show their friends or their family that they're associated, right? So I think for us, what we're trying to do in the food and beverage space is something that hasn't been done in that space. So it's been done in fashion, it's been done in cosmetics, it's been done in other industries. But I think the food and beverage world is so old school that when you bring a little bit of zest or like a little bit of like edginess, or, you know, non-herd mentality, you start to see the outcome tremendously because food is such an intimate product. It goes in your system, you consume it. So one thing you actually put through your system and or medication or pharmaceuticals. But I think what's interesting about food is, is you buy it consistently and you don't even care. It's like, you're, like you said before, you're buying the chocolate. I need to eat chocolate. I'm hungry, blah, blah, blah. But what if you made it a little bit more than just survival or the evolution of human and you made it more like, fuck, I want to just be part of it at all times. I want to go home at night, share it with my parents, my family members, my friends, and tell them how this brand impacted me. Man, what, what has been a story of like, you know, where, where you're like, it's working. We're turning customers into fans. And the reason I'm asking this question is because I love that, you know, everyone talks about launching a content CPG brand with a celebrity, sort of like, you know, what the Nelk boys are doing and stuff. But like, you've proven out that you don't, you don't need necessarily to, to, to build the audience first. Maybe um, you flip the model. I think, you know, you're, you're starting to see the world come to this CPG world is now turning into celebrity packaged goods and not consumer packaged goods anymore. And I think that that's, that can work in certain scenarios. And most of the time, if you look at this, the stats, it actually doesn't work. It gets an initial pop and then it slowly decreases because again, the genuine authenticity isn't genuinely there. So I think when we decide to celebritize the entrepreneurs and the brand, 
by storytelling and, and sharing things and being transparent as the currency, using transparency as the currency, what ends up happening is, is as you celebritize the brand, it becomes its own influencer. So for example, when I was at our natural product expo in Anaheim last week with our team, it was our first time coming to the US, seeing people in person. And the inflow of people that just came to see us, to take pictures, to talk, to hang out, it was bananas. It must have been in the thousands of shots. But again, we have our entire media team there documenting, taking footage, getting people excited. So, you know, for us, we treat this game as almost like a, an election. Imagine we were running for office or something, and every day is a rally. Every day is to, per, to put on a real performance, not a, you know, a fake thing that we're acting on, but to be ourselves every day, but in a, in 100% on stage mode. And what that does is, again, it celebritizes us. So when we celebritize ourselves, we're taking a genuine model where you and I can relate. You know, celebrities are sometimes hard to relate to. But when you have this other type of celebrity where, you know, you used to see chefs 15 years ago, they weren't celebrities. Now they're all celebrities on these shows, this Food Network, the Master Chefs, all this stuff. The same thing's happening with entrepreneurship right now. Elon Musk, Richard Branson, all these, Jeff Bezos, all these people are building these like celebrity statuses, which is encouraging entrepreneurs to get out there more, be bold, be loud, which is then creating this fandom. And then it's creating this fandom, which ends up pushing more sales in your product that you sell. I always tell people, we are a media company that sells chocolate. Even though we're a manufacturer, we have all that stuff. And that's, we started originally as a chocolate manufacturer. We're really a, a company that tells great stories, builds community. And then the, how they support us is by buying the chocolate. So Jake, why don't you tell us a little bit more about kind of your background? Um, I know you said that you were launching all these different events and community and parties. So what was that kind of stuff you were doing back in the day? Um, and how has that role like transitioned as you guys have moved into midday squares? So before, but I studied to be an actuary actually, which is basically stats and math. It's just so not me. And I was doing it because you know, people around me wanted me to, to do that. And I wasn't doing it for Jake. It wasn't for me. And I kind of suffered at college. I was like, I hate this. I'm getting like 58, 60, 62. I hate doing it. Why am I doing it for someone else? Like I love my parents and I love my friends, but they wanted me to get this great job in investment banking and all this shit. And I was just like, why am I writing my, someone else's narrative? I'm not writing my own narrative and I feel like I'm caged. And then I dropped out of the actuarial science program and I went into financial economics because that's what I liked to do at the time. And I started to feel this freedom of where I was going out a lot. I was meeting people. I was networking. I was building excitement. And then when I graduated, I couldn't get an investment banking job because I, I literally just applied everywhere. No one would take me. And I was like, this, I felt like a loser. I felt like this person who was not Jake Carls. I was someone else. And everyone else was getting the jobs excited. And I was this person sitting behind so what I knew what I was good at was, throw, was throwing events, getting people excited, and making them like me. So I turned that into a business by selling the clothing as the revenue source. But I knew that if I would be able to do the events and get people excited, I could then get them to wear the clothing, talk about it, and then I would be associated with it. And I, at the time, I used Snapchat to tell the story. I, I would tell it all on there. And it was really popular at the time. And then you know, I had 10% of the NFL wearing my stuff. I had the Game of Thrones crew. I had all these people. But again, I was losing so much money. No, no one thought I was because I looked like a hero. But I was actually just building community, community, community. And that was my strength. So when I came to Midday Squares, being the third partner, I, I was told that my job is to be Jake. That was the job. But what I wanted to do is because society pressures you to have some sort of like manager position if you're an owner. 
So I went into the CMO position, head of marketing, whatever you want to call it. And within the first six months, I was completely a disaster just because I had to manage people. I didn't know what to do. I was again, playing to my weakness, not my strength. And then finally, after my therapy sessions, I go, we, we go to a business therapist once a week, the three of us together. Um, I finally realized that I need to drop this role and I need to just be the rainmaker. And what that meant was I need to just go build the community, have no rules, no intentions, just build the network of midday squares and bring it in whenever we need it. So if we need to raise money, I'll go find us the venture funds. I'll go build best friends with them. If we need a PR, I'll go get Forbes to write about us. I'll get business insider. I'll build the relationships. And that's what I started doing. And that's what led to me into this, in this whole role of like being the person that's out there and always building, building, building the network. And I think every brand needs a rainmaker. They just don't know they need it. Yeah. And in terms of that pro that role that you guys were doing in the beginning, like going out, throwing events, getting people to wear the clothes. And like you were saying, even documenting that on Snapchat, that maybe isn't so different. Maybe like five, six, seven years ago, that's almost like the equivalent of what you guys are doing today. Just different platform, different medium, different product, and you get to be yourself. I think the most important thing is, is to be yourself. But I think what's important is you're right. The, the, the old business I had, it's the same model from a storytelling perspective that I'm doing now. But now I have a fully operational business that's, that, that's growing strategically and is being well kept because my partner's skill set's very different than my skill set before I was in it myself. So I was doing everything, you know, accounting, finance, this, that. And I was just, you know, designing the clothes. It was a disaster. And I hated every moment and I would go into analysis paralysis. And again, I started to feel that cage, no freedom. My wings were like being cut. And then finally, when I joined Midday Squares, I felt that freedom again. As soon as I, as soon as I started doing me again. Man, you talked in the beginning about following your gut. Um, how did that play along and how do you still use your gut to continue to make these decisions because everything you're doing here is hasn't been proven out, right? Like all the data you had was a report that your brother found. From there on, it seems like it's been all gut. Yeah, so it's it's tough, man. You know, being being an entrepreneur, being anyone, being a creative, being whoever you are in life, you know, sometimes you're you're really misunderstood um, until you really hit massive success and then everyone understands you, right? But on the process to get there, being misunderstood, you get made fun of, you get doubted, you get the noise out there is dangerous for the brain. It's like, you know, I remember we had an acquisition bid from Hershey's last year and everyone was telling us, take it, take it. You're an idiot. If you don't, if you don't do this, you don't do that. And I was starting to like question my first principle thinking, which we don't want to sell this company. So I started questioning it because I was getting poisoned by all that noise. But then I realized that my gut is everything. And my gut is telling me, no, block out that noise and keep doing what you believe in. And the three of us, me and my partners, have the same mentality. We've learned how to strengthen our gut by making uncomfortable decisions consistently that eventually become comforting, right? So the more you put yourself in these scenarios that are unproven or territory that's not familiar, you're slowly going to get more familiar with that feeling and then your gut might not be right every single time. It might not. It truthfully shouldn't, to be honest with you, because if you are, then you're an absolute genius and, and you're the number one in the world. But, you know, if it's right eight out of 10 times, you're going to fucking hit it out eight out of 10 times. If you're following the herd every single time, you're going to have an average outcome in life because it's statistically proven average inputs will cannot give an outlier input, an output. It cannot. 
statistically proven. If you give it outlier outputs, you're going to get an outlier, sorry, outlier inputs, you're going to get an outlier output because statistically it can only be a zigzag, right? So the zigzag might be shit or it might be fucking great. And I think that you got to be okay with either or. So I'm okay with failing this business tomorrow or hitting it the home run at a, you know, past a billion dollars. And I think that you start to trust yourself more and more, but it takes practice. It takes putting yourself in those scenarios. If you don't, you're never going to strengthen that gut feeling. You're always going to listen to the noise out there that's surrounding you at all times. And I know, you know, you mentioned that's the vulnerability that you were talking about earlier. And speaking of that, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this or not, but I think I saw that you guys then got sued by Hershey's. Is that right? Yeah, dude, dude. Yeah, it was. Uh, so because we're a creative and we document our journey. So first we were in, we were in talks with a, a bid from Hershey's, you know, their M&A team, very nice people. Um, and I'm a fan of Hershey's, by the way. So you know, we weren't interested in selling, blah, blah, blah. Two months later, they came at us with season's assist on the packaging, all these packaging infringements on color orange, claiming that they own the color orange for the peanut butter. And they were okay with it before. So it's like, it was ironic. But what we did was, you know, instead of fighting them at court, even though we probably could have won potentially, it, it wasn't worth the 500000 to $3 million cost and energy that would have been sucked into that. So what we did was we just documented the story and shared the rebrand of how we, what we went through, the irony of it, the emotionality, and how we came up with the new packaging. And that, that got our consumer base fired up. That got our consumer base, the fans, sorry, more amped, more fan. They, we had more fandom from it. And then the traditional media got involved. It was a whole thing. Until this day, we just made a music video, a diss track to Hershey's about it. And it was just hilarious because we took a creative response. We took an authentic creative response instead of a legal response or anything like that. And at the end of the day, it worked for us. It, it actually helped us grow. And the intentions were not to do that, but the intentions were to share with our community what we had to go through and what other small businesses might go through and how shitty of a feeling it is. But we were resilient and we got out of it even better than we were before, to be honest. That's wild. The I, I think that in terms of taking, looking at your opportunities and where you're at, you get slapped with like a potential lawsuit or something. And like you said, 500K to $3 million in potential fees, or let me, let me invest all that money that I would have put into like fighting someone that we can't fight in court and just take that and allocate that into branding, storytelling and okay, whatever you, you tell us we can't do that. We'll change the color, whatever. And we're going to be better for it. So I think that's, I think the lesson there is always fight on, uh, you know, unequal, unequal footing, right? Like try to take the things that don't, don't fight with tools that, you know, someone else is, is, uh, is going to be fighting with. Anyway, the, so the greatest thing about yeah, it, is, it is, is when they sent that season assist, it was just like, they, they entered a realm of just playing that game with us where it's like, okay, like it's no fun to do legal. It's no fun for anyone. Let's even for them. Um, but what we did realize was our gut told us in the moment, even though it's uncomfortable to share this, cause people don't usually share their, their, some sort of legal, you know, proceedings on whatever they have to go through in life. We were like, this is part of our story. Let's just share it. And whatever comes, comes. And I think that that was what people appreciate about us. Our community appreciates the, the transparency and also the show all, tell all, tell all, sorry, show everything, tell all. And we stay true to that. And we even, even if it's shit. 
Yeah. And even in terms of authenticity, right? Like had you not shared that and you just kind of randomly went through a rebrand and show up with a different color one day, it's, it's not going to quite make sense. Right. And customers are going to know it's like, okay, well, why are they rebranding? Like what's going on here? So being able to going back to that authenticity thing, you're like, okay, if we're going to rebrand, we're going to do it and we're going to be authentic about it and not just be like, oh, sorry. Like here's our new color for no reason whatsoever that no one asked for, you know? Um, so I, I think a lot of people can pick up can pick up on what's authentic, what isn't, and you guys leaning into it is obviously um, a huge thing. The next thing that you had mentioned that I haven't really heard too much about, but you you had mentioned, it, so I wanted to kind of dig in there. You said you guys do business therapy uh, every week, you and the team. So what what's that all about, and and how is it how has it helped you guys? So when we started August fourth, twenty eighteen, there was two agreements we had. Number one was my agreement to my partners was. I know you're introverted, but if we're going to do this, we're going to document everything and you're going to have to be on camera for the good, the bad, the ugly. And that means your private life is kind of off the table at this moment. And you've got to accept that. Otherwise, I cannot be part of this business because I know it won't succeed as, as well as it potentially can if we don't share the true story. That was number one. So they signed that. I signed that. Number two was my brother-in-law. He said that partnerships are the most important thing, especially that we're family, right? They're married. My sister is married to my brother-in-law. You know, we're very close to each other. They said that we need to work on having the most excellent communication that we can have as partners, but also as family members. And the reason being is if you look at the reasons why a lot of startups fail, it's not even capital or, or product market fit. It's actually founder conflicts. So what we did was... We were, they were already seen this therapist before. And they said that to me, they're like, in only to join, in order to join, you need to come once a week in both good times and bad times. And even if you don't want to, and you don't believe in it, you need to try it because that's going to keep our partnership very, very strong. And I didn't believe in it at first. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I was like, I'm this cool guy. I was in a fraternity before. I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I'm a happy person, even though I wasn't. And I was just like, I don't need help, nothing. So I went in with the first two episodes, two, sorry, two um, sessions, and I was just like negative. And then I realized that, holy shit, this is the most powerful tool to have. It is what protects your brain. It's what protects, it's what allows you to see different things, to see outside the box, to lead, to be a better communicator, and to have those hard conversations. So we go once a week, good or bad times. And without Dr. James Gavin, he's the therapist. We wouldn't have made midday square. It wouldn't be existent today. There's no way we would have, you know, crushed each other um, because it's too hard. It's a, you're, a startup is a pressure cooker. When you have that much pressure, how could you have a good relationship? How could you have? How could you be happy if you're if you're always having consistent problems and a lack of positivity? You know, so it's been the best investment, and our investors love it too because it keeps us very strong together as a as one. When it comes. To- that's you know that's definitely like I, I just I just love this so much because your main ethos you know the the midday squares is not about for example um, mental health etc yet there are mental health brands that were all about mental health and like they're not even doing um, this kind of stuff for their own teams um, which is like it's ironic that like the brands that it's almost like the the word authentic is so played out that even using the word authentic is like not authentic when the brands use it in their marketing um so i i just love that you guys are are living um you know what you're what you're preaching so you know you mentioned our investors what how to have you guys fund it i mean because creating content is expensive um 
how did you guys raise from the very beginning and how have you financed the content um and you know how how has the how much are you spending not necessarily exactly how much are you spending but how is it different now what you spend on content now versus when you were trying to prove it out yeah so we have amazing investors you know shout out to boulder food group selva ventures um you know we have some new ones coming on which i don't want to announce yet it's almost done but um, you know, we have a guy like David Sim and Mike Fata. Anyways, these guys, these people are amazing. There's many other ones in there that are unbelievable and they truly f- believe in content and storytelling. So, you know, when we go raise money, we always look for people that believe in our vision. We are very transparent off the bat. If you don't like that, we say the word fuck on television and stuff like that, then don't get involved with us. We're going to have problems. Um, it's just, we're not changing who we are because that's, what's built the brand and we're open to criticism and feedback. Don't get me wrong. But we're staying true to who we are and we keep control of the company. So we've raised, you know, a tremendous amount of money already. And a lot of it goes to R&D, um, which is very important for product market fit. And then the second amount goes to content. We spend about five hundred to $750,000 a year on that um, right now. When we first started, it was just the three of us. So we were using an iPhone and just documenting ourselves. And we slowly started to build that team up from one person to two to six to eight. And, you know, we hope it gets bigger and bigger. I think now it's eight people in the, in the content team and their job is just to consistently take content, edit, have a great story, build an arc, build emotionality in there. And I think that our investors see the value of how powerful it is for community building. You know, they can go invest in many different commodities out there. Great products. There's a lot of great products out there, but what they can't find is great products with a very powerful community or an army behind them. So they actually enjoy funding that side. And then from the manufacturing side, we got funded by our government here. Uh, we get financed um, to, to, for the facility and the machine. So not only the growth capital only goes so the, from the VC is just for content, media, and R&D and talent. And then capital for manufacturing is coming from debt financing from the governments or grants, or et cetera, those things. So what are the other ways that you're acquiring customers outside of content? Or is it is it just a content play for now? So we have different strategies. Obviously, we use influencers, so external influencers. Like the mom community is very strong for us. You know, Midday Squares is a great product for that midday craving for chocolate. So a lot of moms, you know, we, we actually, you know, hire a lot of mom influencers to talk about the product, you know, and, and, and that creates a lot of new customers for us. We obviously have paid Facebook ads, paid YouTube ads that are, are not the same content necessarily that's going on our organics. It's a little different just to, you know, grab new people in. And then we bring them into our ecosystem of like podcast, our podcast, our, our media, all this stuff that they start to see like, holy shit, who is this brand? They're whack. They're crazy. They're cool. Um, and then, you know, we do a little bit on um, email marketing is, is, a, is a very good source for um, revenue. And then otherwise, it's just word to mouth. One question that I had was, um, I saw that after you guys have done this successful launch, you've created this brand, you've created all this buzz and you guys are really out there and everything, but, um, you've been giving lectures at like some of the big schools in Montreal. Is that right? Like what, what has that been like? What are some of the things you've talked about and what's it like going to talk at some of the big universities coming from the position that you're in where you studied a certain major, you're like, okay, I'm over that. I'm gonna go do my own thing. And now you're back in those same places um, educating their students. So, you know, what's funny is a lot of these schools I didn't get into, um, I actually got rejected. Um, So when I go back there, I always tell the students, I'm like, 
I'm like, listen, I'm not, I don't know everything. I really don't. I'm no expert in anything. But what I could do is I'm here to share my experience on what I went through from a personal journey and a business professional journey. And, and here's what happened and here's why. And a lot of the time I'll talk about being unapologetically yourself and choosing what you love. And I don't mean passion because you need passion and your mind to do both. You need your heart and your mind. You can't just have one or the other. So what I do is my goal is to show them that you can build a business, start a business or work somewhere and be unapologetically yourself and win at the highest levels possible. There's no ceiling there, right? But again, it's uncomfortable. There's a lot of discomfort in doing it. You're misunderstood. You're doubted. You're made fun of. I, I talk about all this stuff. And my goal is, is to specifically inspire them to just think, just to think about, are they on the right track? And it's okay if they're not, but are they starting to think of other things? Are they trying to explore other things? Are they open to it? Do they feel this immense amount of societal pressure that's actually unnecessary? And I basically share my experience. And then on other lectures, I'll talk about storytelling, giving the strategies that we use or on brand marketing, all that stuff. But for me, my goal when I go back is to inspire the students to just to think about what's happening and kind of try to get them outside of that square societal box. Yeah, I think that's really the the most important thing. I remember when I was in undergrad, um, I was in undergrad at Harvard and everyone there was all about like, you know, investment banking, finance, et cetera, and kind of going where the crowd is going, um, but not necessarily doing things because they actually or we actually believed in it just because that's that's the cool thing to do. That's what society wants you to do. And so you kind of do that. Um, and being able to the earlier I believe any individual can recognize what their talents are, what their passions are for, and, um, you know, kind of try to at least explore and pursue those without saying, oh, I'm just doing this because everyone else is doing it, the quicker you can figure things out. Because once you get out of school, the market is what's judging you. It's not a it's not a teacher in a classroom saying, hey, good job or bad job. It's it's the market. And the market has a whole different way of evaluating success and failure than um, the systems that are set up in a lot of the schools that, that kids are going through. I think the system needs to change. Um, you know, and I think you know, the pressure is too high. The pressure is way too high on the students. And I think that, um, you know, when I go in there, what's different about me speaking than, a, than a, you know, a, an executive at uh, IBM or, or, or one of these companies is that I'm, I'm almost close to their age. So, you know, I go in there, I make them dance, I do whack shit. It, it's like, they're like, what the hell is going on? And I think that that, again, is authentic to me. And I kind of explained to them that. And they're like, this was so fun. This is so different. It's so not serious. And when you take that out of them, out of their environment, it starts to change things, right? Their mind is more open to listening. They want to be part of it. And again, it also builds the Midday Squares brand, right? So personal branding, if you're not doing it in today's world, then you're missing the point because it actually allows you to push your whatever else you're doing, your career, whatever, or your job or, or the business you're in by you building your brand. I don't mean build it with an ego. I mean, be yourself, share content on platforms, Get a fan base for yourself and that fan base will follow you around wherever you go. So they'll support your chocolate company if you have a chocolate bar. They'll support your, your D2C business if you have a D2C business. They'll, they'll want to because they're a fan of yours. You can't turn them into fans if you don't do anything. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I love the the authenticity that you bring to those kids. I'm sure they loved dancing around. They're like, what is going on? But they're like, Let, let's, uh, let's do it. So... Um, I guess the the next question I'd have in terms of like the business where you guys are at now and what you guys are focused on. So um, 
you guys obviously launched and really focused on D2C in the beginning. Is that still a focus of you? I know, are you guys expanding into any retailers or what's your kind of sales strategy as you start to scale up? You've built this content audience, you've built manufacturing, R&D, you've built a product, you have a brand around you, and now you probably wanna be anywhere your fans are so you can meet them there, right? So what's your kind of strategy and the next steps in terms of where you guys um, are distributing? So yeah, it's very important. We started D2C um, in, in the beginning because we didn't have any retail. No one wanted our product. So we needed to build that excitement. Right now, we're about 45% D2C uh, on our website, You know, on Shopify, obviously, so is our platform. But we also have Amazon too. Um, and then 55% is retail right now. And at the end of the day, I believe that retail will be 70-30 in the end for us. So 70% retail, 30% D2C at scale. Um, the reason is there's so many doors. There's so many retailers. Um, and they actually, it's, it's actually a good strategy for us because it gets within kilometers away from every customer we need and they don't have to commit to these bigger boxes, you know, stuff like that. And freight right now is an absolute disaster. So it's costing us a lot of money to get it. So we're working as hard as we can to open up the right retailers. But our strategy is simple. Open up food service first in a city. So gyms, juice bars, coffee shops, then move as soon as that's up and people are hyping a little bit, let's move into like a, like a, a natural store that's around there, like a, you know, in the community. And then once that is moved to a natural chain in that region, and then when, when that's ready and we're doing well there, we finally move into, uh, you know, the bigger, bigger companies like a Target, like a Walmart, like a, you know, a bigger box retail Kroger. Um, so right now we're just in the natural game and we're in the, um, you know, food service as well, but we're starting to move into conventional um, next year. And what is, in terms of the manufacturing side of the equation, what's that been like in terms of like scaling up to meet different demand, whether it's just D2C or scaling up to meet um, local and bigger retailer needs? It, it, the manufacturing has been the hardest. You know, we went to 26 co-manufacturers to scale this originally in Europe, Canada, and the United States, and none of them were able to make the product. So that forced us to build our own facility. Um, and this facility is 70 to 75% custom machinery. That's, that means only Midday Squares has it in the entire world. And that makes it very complex from a standpoint of scaling, right? So when we first started, I'll never forget, we were making the bars in the condo. We were only able to do about 80 bars a day, literally 80 bars total. Now, three, three and a half years later, we're able to do about 90,000 in 24 hours. So the scaling has happened. Now we're working on the margins there. We're working on the actual waste management. We're working on all the stuff that gets us there. But our capacities jumped because we automated. How many SKUs do you guys have? Three. We have three and we're launching a fourth, probably Q4 this year. How does the community play into that? I bet, you know, they, you guys get a bunch of inbound and a bunch of ideas and requests and they're probably all over the place. But but that pretty much, you know, that's free R&D. Yeah, so we do two strategies to get the community involved. So we do first off, we take their in their feedback and we put it in, 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 our, in our platform so that we know we have all the data always when we do surveys, when we do this, when we do that, when we ask questions, when DMs come in, they're all put into a, the same area of a database. So we could see, and for our flavor profiles that we choose, a lot of it comes from their opinion, but then we look at the comparison to the market data on the market, right? So from the actual store data and all this stuff, and then we make that gut feeling of how do we balance those two? Um, so that way we're listening to our consumers because they know what they want. But then we listen to the mass in terms of how big can we get this in terms of actual scalability, right? And then from a perspective of like just an example of this whole situation with our consumer and our, and our community is, you know, we're moving down from two squares. Right now we're two square products on so the package of two squares. 
as of June 1st, we're moving down to one square officially, and that's what we're staying at. And that that's because the number one request over the last three and a half years has been either to keep make it one square because it's too filling or to do a resealable pack on the two square so that they could save it for later and keep it fresh. So we decided to do one square and that's a big change because that's a that's an actual, you know, decrease in product size. That's that's a that's a whole thing. And again, that was us listening to what our community wanted and we're excited to finally release it June 1st and I think it's going to fly. I think it's going to go crazy. Yeah, that that's awesome and I I think it's really it's crazy to think about, but when you're when you're building out a business, even something that sounds so trivial, a product change like, oh, let's just go from two square to one square, when you already have the manufacturing and you've scaled up to build it, like those are all things. So maybe even, you know, for earlier CPG founders who are like scaling up their manufacturing and their processes, thinking about how you could bake in different like flexibility at an earlier stage to be able to test out those different hypotheses, right? Yeah, it's a whole process to change, even if it's a size change. It's you got to change the packaging, you got to change how the machines are operating, you got to do this, that. You have to do the branding change. There's a lot of things that go into it, even UPC codes, triggers, blah blah blah. So I think that people people also shouldn't be launching 20 SKUs at once. You know, build core SKUs, get people to know who you are, then launch extensions that are fuck yeah good. And what I mean by that is don't lose the trust to your consumer. It takes one thing to lose the trust and then it's gone. They're not coming back, likely not coming back. So a lot of these brands are chasing revenue because they have quarterlies to hit or they have they have the vent, the venture money that wants that has a timer, right? So they'll just do anything to hit those numbers. But then when you don't put the love into the product as much, the consumer feels that the fan no longer becomes a fan. They become either just a customer or a no one to your brand. So I think... Be very, very careful on how much you launch, the quality you launch, and the love you put into it. Well, Jake, just wanted to, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, just wanted to, you know, thank you for coming on, sharing your insight, and bringing the heat. Um, you know, there's a lot of energy on this podcast. I know our, our listeners are going to love it uh, in terms of all the value that you dropped. And for anyone who's listening, where can they find you guys on social? You personally, are you on Twitter, LinkedIn, um, Instagram? Like what are the handles that they can follow you or Midday Squares at? Well, definitely follow Midday Squares at Midday Squares on Instagram, on LinkedIn. It's the same thing, Midday Squares and on TikTok. Um, but if you're going to follow, if you want to follow my journey, I'm on, on Instagram at Jake, at Jake Carls, J-A-K-E-K-A-R-L-S underscore. And then on LinkedIn, it's just Jake Carls. And I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you want to talk, you want to, you want to get on a call, you want to look at my content. I post bold shit. That's not typical to corporate, to the corporate world. And that's why it blows up on there. But, um, a little secret for everyone is LinkedIn's algorithm is very good for content. It pushes it very far. So Everyone should just start posting as if it's like your lifestyle on there because um, they're pushing content that's like the algorithm. It's almost unheard of. It's like Instagram in its original phase, which is really interesting. What about YouTube? YouTube, I am not on really. Um, the brand is slowly getting on it. We're, we have like nothing there, like 150 subs. We don't put any effort. We will down the line switch the content to have long format there to have like our series live there. So like actual real big moments. Um, but for the next year, I would say we're not touching that resources is the is the reason no totally makes a lot of sense but anyway i wanted to thank you um would next time you're down in miami let us know we'd love to run it back with you down there in person um so anyway best of luck to you guys the rest of the year and 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 thanks for coming on yeah thank you Jake. appreciate y'all i appreciate y'all